Good morning. Today's reading is from Haggai chapter 2, starting in verse 1. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you, you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in. And I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. All right, well, good morning. Welcome to Stonehouse. My name is Derek. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we are continuing near conclusion um, uh, in a series on the exile. Um, And today we're actually doing a little bit of a repeat, looking at some of the same situation that we looked at last week um, with a little bit different application. Um, And I don't know if this, if if anything like this is in your experience, but um, I had uh, a couple of tremendously close friends when I was a little boy. Um, They were neighbors of mine. I could walk to their house. I did all the time. Um, Both of the friends that I have in mind right now had uh, ponds in their backyard, um, which is a miniature lake. Um, that turned into glorious crystal goodness in the winter when it froze over. And uh, we skated on their backyard, or on the ponds in their backyards. Um, One of these friends in particular, his name was Mike. Um, He was uh, just one year ahead of me in school, one year older than me. Um, I looked up to him in a lot of ways. Um, I can can distinctly remember sitting in his bedroom, um, listening to particular songs, um, when those songs come on, all I think of is when I first heard that song with Mike um, in his bedroom when we listened to the cassette tape um, of those albums. Um, I also remember that Mike always had the one-up better Star Wars toy than me, right? So I had the X-Wing, which was great. I mean, that's Luke's ship. Like, what's better than the X-Wing? Well... He had the Millennial Falcon. You know, I mean, it was just always a a little bit better. And um, something happened later in life. So uh, Mike and I went through um, middle school and high school, and he was, again, he was a year ahead of me. Um, He was a little bit better hockey player than I was, obviously a little bit better looking than me. Um, uh, And and so he had a a class of friends and acquaintances that was just a little bit outside of mine. And so we kind of grew and distance from each other in those boyhood years. 
uh, began to fade, and that happened even more so in, in college years and everything like that. And um, I remember very clearly the day that the last episode of the new Star Wars shows came out, um, you know, the bad ones, um, episodes one, two, and three. Um, so when episode three came out in the theaters, I happened to be back home visiting my family in Minnesota, and I called up Mike, and uh, we went to watch that movie together. And the buildup for that day for me was like, this is it, right? This is going to be the moment where I recover all of the joy of my childhood. The friendship that Mike and I once shared is gonna reemerge into this awesome bromance. Like, things are gonna be great. The Star Wars trilogy or septilogy or whatever the heck is is gonna finally close and be complete. And it was all just this gigantic letdown, right? The movie, for one, was a letdown, right? <laughs> Hanging out with Mike before and after the movie was a letdown. Like, we had nothing to talk about. We had no common experiences. We had gone completely different directions since we were, like, age 12. And so it was just this huge moment of, like, oh, was that it? You know? Was that, is that all we've got, bro? Like, is that all we had, man? I thought we... You know, just this tremendous disappointment. There was a personal letdown. I thought that rewinding my life back to uh, the mid-'80s and remembering Mike and hanging out with him as my best bud uh, would, would bring back so much joy, and it just, it just fell tremendously short. And, and the experience that these returned exiles had um, after they had been away in Babylon in captivity and, and were able to come back home and start kind of rebuilding their lives, they had a similar experience in their personal recollection um, in being back in their land, back among their people, uh, in particular back in the place where a temple was being rebuilt for the glory of God uh, to represent that the God of Israel was there with them. Um, so this word that comes from Haggai comes at a moment where the people are really, really let down. Um, and so for us, it has tremendous uh, ramifications that when we look at our lives and we're let down, or we look back at things in our lives and wish, oh man, if they could only be like they once were, uh, the fact is that even if we could go back, we would realize, you know what, life is life, man. Uh, it is always sub glorious. Um, and so that's, that's a, a huge application point for us this week that we're going to be able to do. So let me pray for us, um, then we're going to uh, jump into this event uh, and, and dig in a little bit before we apply it to our lives. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Thanks, Father, for this day um, that it's given to us to, um, to repeat and remember, um, to rejoice and to sing, um, to uh, be reminded and pointed to um, Christ in the glorious gospel, um, as a people to be brought to a place where we uh, tune our hearts into the truth of God uh, and seek to let it soak into our souls, um, even as we live in the midst of a world, and maybe even this day is, is like this for us, where, where there's so much noise, uh, so much distraction, um, so many uh, things to filter through and try to figure out what is true and what is right and what is stable and what is good. Um, and we know that those things, true and right and stable and good, that those are true statements about your word uh, that you have given to us so that we might be aided in um, the journey of knowing you more, um, seeing the world rightly, even seeing ourselves and our neighbors and our friends and our family and our enemies rightly. Um, would you, by your spirit, open our hearts 
uh, to the Holy Scriptures so that they would be more than just simply story um, to us, so that they would go deeper than just folk, uh, but they would dig into um, our actual experience of this world and uh, that the living word uh, would come and address our hearts this morning. We need it because we are prone, um, like every weak human around us, we are prone to forget uh, that you are God, that you are good, uh, that you are with us, and that you are faithful. We want to remember these things today. We pray that we would see them and that we would see them in Jesus and that we would rejoice in him. Uh, please help me uh, as these words are communicated through a really flawed person. Um, God, might your life come through uh, in Christ's name. We pray. Amen. Amen. So um, the beginning of this passage in Haggai uh, 2 is about a month after Haggai had shown up the first time. Um, and Haggai was the prophet who started talking to the people after they returned. Um, Ezra was one of the leaders that helped them come back from Babylon, uh, which had been conquered by Persia, and the world was shifting. Um, and in that shifting world, people were allowed to go back and start to rebuild in Jerusalem. Um, and Haggai here, Haggai 2, 1 to 3, um, the, the prophet comes to these people and he says, hey, who's still around here who remembers this house, meaning the temple, uh, in its former glory there in verse 3? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? And this statement um, harkens all the way back to Ezra in chapter 3. Uh, Jason preached on Ezra and Nehemiah a couple weeks ago. Whether you were here or not, that was kind of the historical retelling of what happened when the people got back to the land. They got back, they started to try to rebuild things, they faced some opposition, it was hard, uh, it was confusing, they stopped building for a while, Haggai came back to them and said, hey, 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 don't stop, keep on building. So then they, they went back and tried to build again. Um, and in the middle of all that, in Ezra chapter 3, verses 10 uh, through 13, we read this last week, where there was a bunch of people who saw the foundation of the temple being laid... And they bawled their eyes out. They wept loudly. Um, and in particular, it was uh, members of the household of the priesthood and the Levites, old men who had formerly lived and seen the greater glory of the temple, often referred to as Solomon's temple, that was sacked and ruined and burned and pillaged by the Babylonians. So then they get take off into, into exile. They're there for 70 years. These are old, old, old men. They come back, and this temple's being rebuilt. And some of the people are just, they're lost with how bad this thing looks. And they weep. And, and Ezra tells the story. He says that there was a celebration because people were happy, and they had the, 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 the commands of, of David's writing and, and the Torah to tell them this is what you do in the presence of God. So they tried to kind of do some of the festivals again. And so there was celebrating, and then there was crying, and Ezra says you couldn't tell the difference from afar between the happy voices and the sad voices. It was this mixed moment of jubilation and, and disparaging, um, and, and I don't know if you've ever seen or heard a group of grown men weep openly, um, but it is a, a, it is a security-shaking thing to encounter. Um, when people that we look at as pillars and strength and steady, when they lose it, right? That's a tough moment. Um, and when that happened in the culture of Israel, there was this kind of recognition of like, oh man, what's going on? What have we missed? What has gone wrong? What have we lost? And all of Israel started to see this 
return from exile be much less glorious than what they hoped it would be. Um, and that moment uh, we talked about last week kind of pointed to not just the temple reconstruction, but to the whole return in general. That as the people came back, they did not have their own king anymore. Um, that as the people came back, they did not have the, 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 the places to live in, and they did not have the purity of the nation of Israel to experience, and they did not see the temple in its same glory, and they had a foreign king still ruling over them. There was so many things that were subpar or less than glorious of what they remembered, and there was a grief that fell over the people because of that reality. And so we talked about that and this, this kind of sad remembrance that happened and how there are for us two applications. And one of them was that often we experience this reality of disappointment when we, when we look at the church, right? Because we talked about how Jesus was the temple who came and then later in the New Testament we see Paul and Peter refer to the people of God as the temple, um, as the visible representation of God among the nations. And when we think of that reality, it's kind of like a little scary because the church, honestly, is a mixed bag, right? It's kind of like, uh, sometimes there's some really great stuff going on, and sometimes it's, it's a mess, right? And that might be our present experience, or maybe that's more of a cultural uh, experience. So we talked about that last week, how we experienced personal disappointments with the church, um, and that we also experience cultural disappointments with the church. And that is kind of our reality, that we often look at these things and we just think, oh, isn't there, isn't there supposed to be something better? Isn't there supposed to be something more glorious? Am, am I not supposed to be experiencing something more full? Is the world not supposed to be looking in on the church and seeing something more radiant? Like, why is this the reality? And the bottom line is that if you look to the church to be the thing, then there's always going to be a level of disappointment because the church is filled with what? Sinners, right? I told you last week, your pastor's a sinner, the person you sit next to is a sinner, your sin like every level of engagement that you'll ever have with the church is with a person who is weak and incomplete, has glaring weaknesses, and is sometimes just blatantly rebellious and sinful. That's going to be the experience. Whether it's what you experienced before, what you're experiencing now, or wherever you go and whatever you experience for the rest of your life, you will always have that as your experience with the church. It's a marred group of people. But what's glorious about it is that our, our, our point or kind of our, our end game is not to say to one another and even to the world, hey, look at us, we're awesome, but rather, hey, look at us and how awesome God is that he still loves this mess. Hey, look at how glorious the grace and compassion is that he welcomes in people like me. I get to stand here and I get to tell you from God's word his glorious truth and I have no confidence in my own ability to perfectly reflect to you the words that I'm actually saying. And that's not a moment of disparage. That's look how gracious God is. He can use a donkey. He can do it. He does it. He always has and he always will we get to say to the world look not on us for perfection but look through us to the perfection of Jesus and come and be with us this grace this compassion it can be yours too you're not signing up to a perfect list of absolutely glorious accomplishments you're signing up to a ragtag group of people that say man am I glad that when I woke up this morning there was mercy still for me right that's what we point to in the church. And even though the church can be messy, God will be glorified through her. 
because God is glorified as we experience his grace and his mercy. And so we look not to ourselves to be the hope, but we look to God, and that is one of the ways that we, with these returned exiles, look at the temple in kind of its crumbled state and say, God is still with us. God is still with us and can be glorified even in a less than perfect group of people. The second application, and this is what we're going to spend our uh, the entirety of the rest of our time on, is looking at this reality that the temple was for the people of Israel uh, a centerpiece of their identity. Um, that they, as God's people, uh, were told by God through Moses and through prophet after prophet after prophet that he had chosen them to be his people for a distinct pleasure to be called his own and to be used by his hand to spread his glory to the world. Right? This temple for the people of Israel was something that, that communicated God's peace was there among them. Uh, the temple, when they looked at it, was something that communicated that they mattered um, and that they had uh, something greater, some kind of a purpose that was beyond just themselves. There was a level of, of security in the community when they were able to, to look at the temple and there was vitality in that. And so when this group of people saw a less than glorious temple being reconstructed, there was a little bit of the inside of them that just lost confidence. They thought, what, well, is God not here? Has God passed over us? Is he no longer among us? Do we, do we no longer have this peace and this security and this identity that God gave us through the temple? What, what is going on here? Um, and that experience within the people is something that can bring so much understanding to us because we often find ourselves in a similar position. And whether you're a Christian or not, there's a lot of today that you're going to be able to identify with just for the fact that often as humans we look back at past events and think things were better then, right? Things were better back then. Um, but in particular, for followers of Jesus, on some level, we've experienced the exile, right? We've experienced the estrangement from God and feeling like we're far from him. And then in Christ Jesus, we've found redemption and sonship and adoption uh, and, and, and salvation. And so in, in a way, we've kind of returned from exile in Babylon. We've, we've been brought back to home as followers of Jesus, we have Jesus as our temple. Uh, we have this, this new identity and existence to live within. Uh, we, we have heard that God has loved us. We have looked on the cross and seen indeed that it's true. Um, and we have, we have rejoiced in the fact that we've been given a whole new life. And then we live on a little bit and we go, God, <laughs> where's all the glory, man? <laughs> Like, where is it? I'm on a metal chair, and the air conditioning air conditioning's not even cold enough. Like, where's the glory? You know, I, I mean, like, I sat down three times this week before I went to work to try to read my Bible, and all I got out of it was this weird name, Zerubbabel. Like, I don't get what's going on. I've, I've hit a hard patch in my marriage. My, my parents just got a divorce, like, my job is not going good. I thought I came to Jesus. I thought I had a temple. I thought I had a home. 
What the? Right? This is so much of the experience of followers of Jesus. Whether, again, you're a Christian or not, you can fall into this idea that the best is behind you. It's one of the hardest things about growing old. The idealism of youth fades. The utter, pure enjoyment of life dwindles. Responsibility sets in. This weird new word that's been added to the dictionary, adulting, happens. Like, it's, it just it settles in and it feels less than glorious. So much less than glorious. I talk a lot about working with my dad, and one of my favorite things about working with my dad back in the day was he always sang. Um, and most of the time, we listened to either talk radio or sports radio on the way to the job in the morning, and then once we got to the job, he'd pull out his radio, tune in, cool 108, and uh, Elvis would sing us home, baby. The oldies. That's what they used to call them when I worked with my dad, the oldies. Right? Listen. 104.7's 1980's party weekend right now. Man, it's just a recrafted oldies station. It's the freaking oldies, man. And I love it. I love the oldies. Okay? But because we're too cool now, we don't call it the oldies. And because we're too cool now, we keep making the 80's cooler. Right? Like, thank you, Stranger Things. It's even cooler. Yes. Right? Everything drives us to this place of remembering a day that was better than the day we have today. Right? Again and again, we, we, we brought into this nostalgic way of thinking, and, and we, we attach ourselves to yesteryear, and we imagine it was all better then. Right? Dave Alonzo said, if you don't friend or follow Dave Alonzo, you're missing out. He said this this week, I've gotten old enough to where I always revert back to listening to music from my golden years. That comforted me so much because David's way younger than I am. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, cool, I'm good. <laughs> Even he's doing that. What's that for you? What's that music? Okay, that hurt. <laughs> that hurt. I thought you were going to say like 90s R&B or something, buddy. He's into that too. Okay, that helped a little bit. Right? I mean, now there's something here because the 80s is the best. I mean, there's absolutely no argument whatsoever. And anybody can convince me otherwise. I'm going to put a stein out on the, on, the, on the curb and say the 80s is the best decade ever. Argue with me. Um, it was the best, right? It was absolutely the best. Um, and, and as I look back on my childhood and I remember uh, hanging out in Mike's room and, you know, envying his Millennium Falcon and listening to Michael Jackson's new tape releases, like those are the glory days, absolutely. Um, but then you, you, you kind of pull back and you think for a minute, okay, but wait, really, right? What were the 80s? You just go to history.com or watch CNN's cool documentary on the decade of the 80s and you just go, oh my God, what a mess, Right? Like Cold War, like that's all I got to say, Cold, like, right? Everyone was running around thinking, oh my God, we're going to get nuked. Like that was the permanent angst of the 80s, right? Everyone who was old enough to understand what was going on was afraid we're, we're about to get nuked. Like we are all going to die from nuclear weapons. That's really going to happen. 
oh my God, right? That was a constant state of mind in the 80s. Uh, our president got shot in the 80s, right? Chernobyl happened in the 80s. The Exxon Valdez oil spill happened in the 80s. Do you remember the Challenger NASA rocket that exploded in the, I mean, like it was a mess and everyone was running around thinking, oh my God, we're gonna get nuked, right? There was a lot of tension and a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety going on. There were deep problems going on, not just in our personal lives, but in a country and in the globe. It was not a perfect planet, nowhere near a perfect planet. I was speaking to somebody this week who was reading, uh, who's currently reading a, a biography on um, uh, Theodore Roosevelt. And our conversation about Theodore Roosevelt talked about, you know, his efforts back then in that moment and that day. And, and one of the most striking things um, to this friend who's reading on Teddy Roosevelt was that the, the guy lived through exactly the same thing that every other president has ever lived in that's ever existed, right? People that are amazed by him and people that hate him. Like every single one, right? Every single one. Because of whatever age or category or whatever we're in right now, we might think this is terrible. And they're all bad. Every one of them. And I repeated to him, man, you need to go to the Lincoln Library Museum in Springfield, Illinois. My wife and I were there when it got built and got released. And there's this place where you walk through a, basically a fun room of, of critics and, and uh, newspaper cartoonage and all these things about Lincoln in his presidency. And people hated the guy. I mean, he kind of saved our country, but he was hated, right? Like, there is nothing new and if we go back, nothing was more glorious, right? There's, there's just this proclivity in us to remember certain things and to look back and to think, okay, well, then there was goodness. So really, I digress. The 80s wasn't that great. I mean, there was only four seasons of the A-team. Smoking was allowed on airplanes. Poofy bangs was a real thing. And guys, the Raiders won the Super Bowl twice in the 80s, right? So they were not that great. They were not that great. I need to remember this, and we need to remember this when we look back with fondness or warmth or rose-colored glasses and think to ourselves, man, it was better when, right? It was better when. We can say that culturally, but even more importantly, we can say that personally about our faith. We can say it was better when, and that is a dangerous trap to fall into. We can speak of our past experiences as followers of Jesus and think that they are the golden years and somehow in some way we've lost them. We've missed it. We've taken a wrong turn somewhere or somebody somewhere else has done something and it's ruined our experience or, or whatever that truth may be. And this is a reality that we need to lean into because God wants to grow us here, right? God wants to grow us and mature us so that we do this adulting thing, right? So we move into actually living in a reality that is disappointing and still bringing glory to God in it. Because guess what? Every generation that's ever lived has had that as their experience to fumble through the disappointment of life and still bring glory to God. We can do it.
This sermon series is titled, A Far-Off Country, and that phrase is stolen from C.S. Lewis in this glorious address called The Weight of Glory. If you've never read The Weight of Glory, I highly encourage you to do so. Um, There's an actual book called The Weight of Glory, but the first address or the first sermon in The Weight of Glory is the one that's called The Weight of Glory, and it's it's phenomenal. Um, And in that sermon, good old Clive attaches our, our, our longings in the, for the things of the past to the greater reality that we will always be longing for something, right? Because why? Because we as humans, made in the very image of God, breathed into by God himself, have been made for eternal glory. And so anything that is short of eternal glory will be an experience that leads us to say, oh, what more? What more is there? Right? And so he, he just beautifully kind of helps us to look at this reality that sometimes we, we settle for far less than the glory of God because we think we can find the glory here on this planet. In that weight of glory addresses where he says humans... Um, uh, you know, uh, God doesn't find the desires of humans too strong. In fact, he finds them too weak because we're meddling with things like money and sex and, and relationships, thinking that they're glorious. All the while, there is something so much more glorious for, to, for us to have. He says we're like children playing in a mud puddle who can't imagine that a vacation at the sea is more glorious. Right? This is the, the, the ever-existing tension of, of human desires and pleasures that we think they can fulfill us and that they can bring us into the, the existence of, of glory, but they always fall far short of what true glory is. And he talks about how we have this desire for our own far-off country, and we often find ourselves dreaming or thinking about it. We, we, we get to the place where we feel maybe even shy talking about it because it seems like escapism. Um, he, he says, you know, we just dismiss it by calling it nostalgia or, or romanticism, you know, and he says, but, but listen, really, there's something deep in there. There's something that says, I long for something greater, um, and we often miss what it is that we actually long for. And he talks about how going back to those moments, they wouldn't be the glory that we think they are. Like me going to movie with Mike, my friend, and remembering Star Wars and Michael Jackson was nothing like I thought it would be. It didn't bring the fulfillment that I had hoped. He says this right towards the end of the address. He says, the books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located right, that 80s music or that 90s R&B, right, that, that stuff where we thought the beauty was located, that will betray us if we trust to them. Why? It was not in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. He says these things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, they're good images of what we really desire, but if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself, they are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. Right, we look at people who go too far in the nostalgia. 
right? We look at people who dive too deeply into their past and we say, that's foolish. They're wasting their life. They're wasting their time, right? Uncle Rico and that glorious football achievement ruined everything, right? He's let his entire life Right? He's let his entire life fade away because he's trying to recapture something that's just a vapor. Right? So when we see it to the extremes, we can say, what a fool. But when we see it in its faint remembrance in ourselves, we're, we're slow to recognize the, the insidious nature of the deception within us. Right? And Lewis isn't like, hey, stop thinking about it and stop talking about it. He says, no, dive into it and call it what it is. It's a longing for glory. And you were made for glory. So stop playing with trinkets and toys, right? And start diving in to the glory that can fulfill you. This is such a call to growth and maturity to say, listen, I know that in some ways, life is going to feel like it's less than what I hoped it could be. But I also know that when I'm woken up to my past and were I to see it clearly, I would understand that the thing back then would not bring me the satisfaction. It would just communicate a longing, right? Because we can look at a decade or we can look at a period of time and we can be honest about it. We can say, yeah, that was not you know, the bee's knees. That was not the glorious accomplishments that we thought it would be. And what we can do personally when we look at this kind of the good old days type of thing, what we can do, especially with our faith, is we can start to think things like, well, I must not be as strong a Christian as I thought I was. I'm not experiencing that thing. I remember. I remember the temple. Right? I remember when I first saw the light. I remember the glorious event of my salvation. I remember finally seeing the, the sin and selfishness in me and being freed from it. Like I remember those things and I don't feel that feeling anymore. I must be wandering. I must be losing it. You know, maybe my faith is weaker now. Or we take things on ourselves. Well, maybe I'm not praying enough now. Maybe I'm not spiritual enough now. Maybe I'm not obedient enough now. Maybe I've got some kind of huge sin that God just won't bless me because I, I, I'm like I'm wandering in this area. Like we look inward at these these nostalgic moments and we think I, I, something's lost. Something's lost. And for Israel at this moment, and for us in our moments, God in His grace comes and says. The circumstance is not the reality. What is happening around you is not the truth of my existence and faithfulness and goodness. It is just simply your circumstance. And as we grow in the Lord and we, we start to see that the, the what is happening around me is not the stuff that is dictating whether God is there or good or faithful or not, as we grow in that, we'll mature in our ability to see the world rightly and then to exist in it for God's glory so that we're not just perpetually looking back and saying, I wish it was, I wish it was, I wish it was. Because you'll waste a ton of energy on that. I've done it, been there. 
waste a ton of energy. I wish it was. Like, if it could have only, should have, would have, ah. We just lose so much. And as we grow in this reality, we can rest in the assurance that God himself is not movable, that God himself is not what is shaken, that God himself has not changed, that the faithfulness of the Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever, that he and his presence and his glory and his power are not absent from my life. My life is just drastically different than it once was. We can move into this place where we no longer have the mindset that says, well, the temple is glorious, therefore God is good. The temple stinks, therefore God is gone. Right? We can have that mindset, but graciously God wants to move us into the mindset that says the temple is glorious and God is faithful. The temple's in ruins and God is faithful. The circumstance changes and the faithfulness of God remains. That is always true. These people needed to hear from Haggai. They needed the prophet to come and remind them and assure them that God was with them. And this is the same thing over and over and over again in the scriptures, right? God was with Joseph in Egypt, Egypt's prison. God was faithful to Moses in the desert, right? God was on his heavenly throne when David was removed from his. God was still God when Elijah was afraid and wanted to die. God was good even when Jonah was swallowed by a fish. God was in the midst of the furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and in the lion's den with Daniel. God was standing right there among the people when Haggai prophesied to the weeping elders, God is with us. Haggai 2.4, now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all ye people of the land, declares the Lord. Work. Why? For I am with you, declares the Lord. Not based on what you see in a temple, but based on my promise. Look at verse 5. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. That's what it's based on. My presence, my power, my goodness, and my faithfulness is based on the fact that I made a promise. It has nothing to do with what a temple looks like. God is God. He is there. He is true. He is faithful. He is kind. He is loving. He is just. And that is always the case no matter what your house looks like. Spiritual house. House house. Existential house. Country house. Whatever house lies in ruins. God says, not based on that, but based on my promise, I'm with you. I am here. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Don't you need that? Right now. Right now. Bad news that you got this week, good news that you got this week. Right now, God is with you based on his faithfulness and his goodness. In 10 years, whatever the circumstances come, the same is true. Based on his faithfulness, he will be there. His spirit is in your midst. Fear not. We can stand strong and firm on the foundation of God's faithfulness.
no matter what comes in our lives. And listen, some of you, like let's just play the odds. For some of you, it's going to go great. It's going to go great. You're going to have a good marriage, beautiful children, buy a house at the right time in the market, you invest in the right stock, you get promoted at the right time, you'll get in on that company at the right hour. It's going to go good. Right? You'll have enough money to buy that extra home in Key West. I don't know. Like, it's going to go good. You're 73, you're going to sit on a boat, drink spiked lemonade. It's going to be good. You're going to rock your grandchildren on your knee on the porch watching the sunset. It's going to be good. You're going to die surrounded by friends, people who love you. It's going to be great. But if you get to any of those moments and you think it's because of you, I love you, but you're going to be a butthole. You'll look down on everybody who doesn't do as good as you. Butthole. You'll despise the least, like a butthole. If one of your kids doesn't do quite as good as you, you're going to have a terrible relationship with them because you're a butthole. If you think it was you, you're going to be miserable. And the stuff that you thought would bring you satisfaction, it's going to fall through your fingertips like a fog. You'll keep grasping for more, bigger, nicer. It's never going to satisfy. I love you. Whatever comes to your life will be a gift from God that you did not deserve and cannot earn and will not hold on to. But God can be with you. He can. And he very well might choose to give you all sorts of those gifts to his glory. It's fine. Right? And the other side is true too. Some of you are going to struggle. Some people might look on your life and call you unlucky. Had all the rough breaks. You know, the marriage isn't going to go good. The family's going to suck. Kids are going to rebel. Dad's going to die early. Job to job to job to job to no job to no to job to no job. Retirement, small. You can move into one of those homes. Well, let's be honest, so is the other one. <laughs> Your friends are going to dwindle because you don't have all the cool stuff. You know? Let's play the odds. It's going to happen. Who knows to how many? And the same is true. God will be with you. And your circumstances will not be a sign of his absence or impotence, but rather, regardless of your circumstances, you can stand on the promise that just as he was faithful to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, he'll be faithful to you because of his promise. 
and when you don't have the stuff, <laughs> when you don't have the earthly rejoicing, you will have something far greater than any treasure could ever give you. You will have God, your Father, saying, son or daughter, I am yours and you are mine. Right? Paul the Apostle looked at his wonderfully accomplished life and called it a dung pile to be despised. Okay? Top of his class, chief of religion, the height of existence, the greatest teachers. He looked back on it all and he called it dung rubbish to be forsaken for the sake of holding on to Jesus. He said, so I don't boast in any of those accomplishments. <laughs> in fact, I boast in the fact that I'm a weak sinner so that Christ can be glorified in me. Amen? So Haggai says, be strong. And he promises that the glory will come and that the glory will fill the house. Haggai 2.9, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former glory. And a couple hundred years later, there's a handful of shepherds kicking back on a mountainside as the evening settles in. And suddenly, Luke 2.13, there was, with an angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The announcement of Jesus' birth was a fulfillment of the promise from Haggai. Once again, I'm going to shake the earth. I'm going to rattle the nations with my glory. I'm going to show up, and everything will be different. Right? Just a little later, Luke 2, 25, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. He was a righteous man and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He'd read the promises in Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi. He'd read the promises in Isaiah and Jeremiah. He devoted himself to understanding them and knowing them. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. This was the, when the child Jesus was at the temple, and it was revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, and he came into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, Simeon, this guy, took up Jesus, baby Jesus, little child Jesus, in his arms, and he blessed God, and he said, Lord, now... You are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. This is now the glory of God, and it's here. I can die a peaceful old man, finally, totally, completely okay, because I know what has happened. The glory of God has come, and it is here. It is Jesus, this child. The full glory of God has come to the temple, 
right? These longings in our past always pointing forward to some kind of greater fulfillment that the, the temple will one day be filled with God's glory and Jesus was the filling of the temple with his glory. Jesus met the longings and the yearning and the deep groaning of the people of Israel because Jesus and his living, in his life, and in his dying, in his death, we actually can have peace with God. The peace that that nostalgia promises, right? The peace that the things that we grab at promises. That peace is actually possible and really true deep in our souls because of Christ. He actually brings peace. In Jesus, we find God's final and authoritative word that says, you're mine. You are mine. This is the extent to which I have gone to make you mine. I've sent my only son that he might die upon that cross, that he might take upon your sin so that you could be called my son and my daughter. You now are mine in Jesus. In Jesus, we hear from God this perfect and fulfilling promise. I am with you. Before he ascended into heaven, Jesus said, no matter where you go, no matter what you do, no matter how long it takes for me to return, I will always be with you. I will always be with you. God's full and completed promise, I will be your God and you will be with, and I will be with my people. The reality is, is that everything that is true of Jesus is now true of you. Righteousness, a pleasing aroma to the Father's nostrils the perfect dwelling of peace in our hearts, a stake on the coming inheritance yet to be seen, a place at the family table. The deep longings of us point to so many of these things, and Jesus fulfills these great things. And what he has promised is that what has begun with his arrival, what began with his work on the cross, what began at the resurrection, what began by the Spirit being sent to dwell within every one of us, what began there and has started in a glorious way will be fulfilled in a far more glorious way than we can ever imagine. And so in so many ways, we are with the Israelites in the view of a disappointing temple saying, God, we trust your word that you will fill this temple once again. And we trust that in Jesus, you have given us this peace that we long for. That all the things that we hope that are somewhere either in our past or in our future, those things can be a part of our existence now because Jesus is here. Because Jesus actually can bring us peace. Because Jesus actually can bring us the grace and the comfort and the presence of God. And so whatever happens, whatever happens in our career, in our family, Whatever happens to your financial plans, whatever happens to your home or to your city or your country, whatever happens, it does not and it cannot and it will not change who God is. He is faithful according to his promise. He has sealed it in Jesus Christ and his work on the cross for us. And he has sent a guarantee into our souls now, the Holy Spirit, which says I'm here now and the greatest of all of this glory is still yet to come. Jesus is this glorious fulfillment, and we know we can have peace with God through him, right? What we long for is given to us in Jesus. If he's not enough, nothing will be enough. 
And if we have him, no matter what else we have, we can abide that. We can endure that. We can live through that. And we can even glorify God in that. Even if it looks like lack. Even if it looks like disappointment. Even if it looks like far less than what we hoped. We can still even give glory to God in the midst of that. Oh, that this world would have among it secure people that say, come what may. Come hell or high water. I belong to God. And you cannot shake that. You cannot shake that. What a beacon of glory to your friends. What a beacon of glory to your neighbors. That they can look on your life and see what? Perfection? No. See struggle and weakness, maybe a lot of hard luck, and see an enduring, abiding, faithful human who says, not I, but Christ in me. There is something still glorious even in the midst of this life, right? So whether you get the plenty or the none, may you say with Paul, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's what that verse means. Even if I have nothing, I can do it with Jesus. Even if I have everything, I can do it with Jesus. Even if it's somewhere in between, I can do it with Jesus. No matter what I get, I understand that God is sovereign in it and that God is faithful through it. I can endure because of Jesus. Let's be those people standing in the middle of whatever circumstance we have, pointing to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. And in a way, thank you for memories and nostalgia and remembrances and, and, and things that pull us back into an idea that there is beauty and amazement and glory. But Lord, would you stop us short of idolizing those things and pull us into the real recognition that everything we once thought was perfect is just simply speaking to a greater longing in us. And all of these disappointments that we might face today are just pointing our souls to the fact that this world cannot satisfy. But Jesus can. And God, you will as we endure and as we abide. So no matter what the shaky temple is that we're looking at, whether it has to do with personal experiences in, in church or with God, whether it has to do with more worldly things like jobs and dollar amounts or possessions, whatever it has to do with. If we're looking at disappointment in our life and saying it's not what I hoped it would be, would you help us to find the peace of Jesus? Would you plant our feet firmly, not on our circumstances, but on the faithfulness of God, who has said, no matter what, I will be with you. I am with you. Fear not, be strong, and build on. So God, by your spirit, because of your strength, not ours, because you're faithful to finish what you have started, would you equip us, give us resolve, and help us to glorify you in whatever 
comes to our life. Because it's all from your hand. God, make us these people for your glory. Testimony to your great name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.